Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we had the political theorist David Polanski on the show. The topic? The people. What are they? Who are they? These are critical questions for any democracy. Our friend David just wrote an important essay on the topic for us here at Wisdom of Crowds. Do check it out. It discusses the ancient Israelites and how they have been a touchstone for those talking about nations for centuries. And Shadi and I have been debating this topic for the last few weeks as well. Intense conversations ensue. You may have noticed we've moved to Substack last week. We hope you'll head on over and check out all the new content, essays, debates, and guest writers. Do consider becoming a paying subscriber while you're there. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation with us and David. Become part of the crowd. With all that out of the way, on to the show. So yeah, David, I mean, uh, you know, one of the the, the fights Shadi and I have had, uh, and it's maybe it's like a glancing blow I've landed on Shadi and his democratic minimalism is, is what constitutes the people. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of at the core, I think, of the problem of democracy um, that uh, the question of the people is ill-defined. And at the same time, it's completely critical. Uh, to how you, you you're able to constitute a democracy, and I don't think it it, it undermines Shadi's point completely. And I think his Monday note, who readers should also uh, check out, um, I think you know gets or at least provides a possible way out, which is sort of a belief in the in the people. But it's it's not fully satisfying. It doesn't fully get us there, which again sort of gets us to to your piece, which you've held for a while and and finally got out. Uh, now that we're on Substack and 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 more pr- productive and able to do stuff. Um, which is a wonderful piece about, uh, you know, um, the is the 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 ancient uh, the Israelites uh, and sort of the the question of what constitutes peoplehood and a nation. Um, I guess maybe just to kick us off uh, and sort of as an inducement for listeners who haven't read your essay, uh, why'd you why'd you write that essay? What's behind it? And tell us a little bit about the argument there before we kick us off and sort of we we delve deeper into it. And of course, yeah, sure. we'll include a link to the essay in the show notes. So yeah. um, click. Sure. No, David, I never, well, I, enlighten us. I wrote the piece, I mean, basically because there was an opportunity for self-promotion, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and, you are, you know, and, you are, and, 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 you know, I mean, I think originally we were talking, we were arguing maybe somewhere about maybe a year ago about nationalism and nations where they come from. And I was saying, you know, this was something I had written on a fair bit back in my uh, previous life as a quasi-academic. And it was something I really had given a lot of thought to, you know, the way that, and over time coming up with this idea that of the way that the Hebrew Bible played this seminal role, I think, in early modern political thought, but in a very weird way, because it's a highly blasphemous and inauthentic uh, treatment of the Hebrew Bible. And it's, of course, one that's mostly done by Gentiles, with the exception that proves the rule being Spinoza, who was basically, you know, expelled from the community for his troubles. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and and the truth is, you know, coming, so to go back a little bit, I spent some time in China, and 
I had the opportunity to teach, you know, to, to basically sort of, you know, teach and work with a bunch of associates at this law firm I was working at, uh, I was working at, and I thought I knew stuff, you know, and I knew some, I knew some about Chinese political history, and I would keep using these terms like, you know, state and nation and things like that, and I would get what I think of as the Inigo Montoya response. You know, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And over time, I, I began to be, become more self-conscious about this sense that all of these terms that we have are in some sense time-bound, they're culture-bound, but, but at the same time, we still have this need to try to establish categories and, and, and to think in broad terms. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what is just what it is that makes the nation-state distinctive. What makes this way of thinking distinctive? You know, Pierre Menard calls this the question of political form. What is it about our political form that is in some way distinctive from other political forms? And then maybe we can start having that discussion. And I kept coming back to this idea of the people as something central. Um, but the people is such a weird, weird term, um, the way we use it. We don't think of it as weird because it's everywhere. You know, we the people. It's in all the constitutions. It's even in the non-democratic constitutions. China has it in its constitution. You know, some we, we, we still have to pay lip service to this idea of the people. Uh, but, you know, the sociologist Andreas Mimmer has this, he calls it the tripartite conception of the people. The people is national, it's popular, and it's sovereign. And this is new. This is distinctive, and this is central to modern political life, but it's not something that you find throughout, you know, the history of organized societies or anything like that. It's weird. And so I have to think, and, and so what I thought about a lot was sort of, where did it come from? And I kept finding, you know, the Hebrew Bible everywhere I look. Every time you start to see these discussions of peoplehood kind of come in. Uh, so that's, that's a very roundabout way of answering the question. Yeah, I mean, the the... <clears throat> What's what's uh, what's interesting about the way you approach it in the essay um, is the uh, I don't know maybe this is unfair to you because it's a subtle essay and it you know I I, I read it for probably the fourth time uh, just ahead of this just to sort of remind myself again. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel I feel like on 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 some level um, is it fair to say though. <clears throat> that on this divide between the people being authentic and the people being constructed, it seems like you fall a little bit on the side of, um, you know, the uh, imagined communities sort of side of what the people are, or at least it feels that way a little bit in the essay. That is to say that, you know, as you said, it's a very modern concept, even though in China it means something different and it, but that it's it's something that's come recently and therefore i don't want to say that's inauthentic but that it's it's maybe larded with stuff that that is constructed in a way um and i mean if that's the case i i have some some questions for you but i mean l just answer that for a second is that is that fair to say or or not quite which part that is authentic that is inauthentic that it's inauthentic. That it's a that it's a constructed modern thing, which is you know. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely it's absolutely a constructed thing. Of course, it's very much. I mean, but modern political life is a constructed thing. Yeah, but but still, right? You know, it's it's the. You know, you and I were were talking uh, before this um, about Serbia. There's a there's this massive thing that's just published. That's uh, I guess going to be in the. In the New York Times uh, magazine over the weekend, uh, this incredible profile about the Serbian president and uh, and his ties to to the mob. 
Um, it's it's what's interesting about uh, about a place like Serbia, for example, is that um, whatever you might say about how constructed the nation is and how you know the Serbian nation itself, you know, came to consciousness in the uh, early 19th century as a product of all of these, one of the early actually, you know, European nations that that came to self consciousness. Um, nevertheless, it's you know the history is real. Uh, the place is real. Uh, the continuity uh, tied to religion. Actually, the Serbian people, not unlike uh, the Israelites, for a long time, uh, you know, were held together by uh, really by the church, by the Ortho Serbian Orthodox Church. It represents like a, a real sort of continuity of peoplehood there. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, uh, one could say that in the modern context of you know our modern politics and modern self-conception, that's different from what it was uh, before, but it's also not constructed because there's like that, that vulgar argument about nationalism and the rise of, of peoplehood in the 19th century, which says that it was just the product of intellectuals. There was a bunch of peasants that didn't know any better and they were mobilized, you know, by smart people who came up with stories often bullshit stories that, you know, actually vaguely accorded with history, but a myth was built up, a modern myth of the people, and that this is all it is. And then you fall back on that 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 other famous New York Times thing that, gosh, now I'm forgetting it, that that video explainer about what na nations and nationalism are um, that, uh, or was it the New York Times? Yeah, it was in the New York Times they did it. And I'll, I'll we'll find it in the and in, in, put it in the show notes. Uh, but that it's just basically saying, well, it's all a construct, and therefore we need to basically, it concludes by saying it's something we need to get over. Um, so, you know, I always, yeah, go on. No, I, I take your point, and that's quite right. And one of the problems is that when we get these discussions today, they always seem to be couched by by the sort of backdrop of, you know, cosmopolitanism and sort of BS universalism, where it's like, don't we just think that all particularistic attachments are just atavistic and ancient and stupid and outmoded? Uh, and that's wrong, and that's, you know, ideologically driven and by a kind of very distinctive au courant progressivism, you know, that one can find in, the, you know, the, cap the richer capitals of the world. It doesn't speak to the, uh, as people like to say, lived experiences uh, of the average human being. That's right. But I do think it's important to distinguish between, you know, what we might call nations in a kind of Herodotian sense, you know, the kind of, if you survey the planet, you know, going back to antiquity, you can find, you know, all these peoples or nations, whatever you want to call them, these groups, these particularistic groups that are organized in, or loosely organized, or they understand themselves as forming a collective body in some sense, or perhaps not a body, but a collective in some sense. But that's not a political category. And I mean, it's making it a political category. That's the modern, I think, kick. And that happens with pop, and that really doesn't get going until popular sovereignty takes hold, the idea of popular sovereignty. And so to take the example, I mean, yeah, there was something recognizably culturally Serbian, um, but it begins to achieve political salience against this backdrop of larger nationalization, which they're forced to think to themselves, where do we fall here? And this is, they're still you know, in that process, in a sense, still happening. We can see it. Does that make sense? So if I understand correctly, David, I mean, peoplehood is not a modern construction because as as you're saying it has existed throughout antiquity most prominently with the ancient israelites um so you seem to be making a more careful distinction between peoplehood 
as perhaps something more authentic, and then nationhood as a modern construction that is dependent on the creation of the modern nation state. Is that is that a fair characterization of what you're trying to get at here, that distinction? Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, the problem is all these, these terms are always tr- tricky because, you know, they're our terms and they always end up getting laden with our own kind of, you know, resonances, whether we intend them to or not. Um, I do think that peoplehood in the very loose sense of recognizable cultural groups, you know, something like, the, you know, again, something like the kind of stuff that Herodotus is talking about when he calls attention to the many different peoples that he can, you can find throughout the known world. Those are age-old things, and I think they've always existed. I mean, that's just how people people organize themselves in particularistic ways, and and that's normal. Um, but there's a particular way of thinking about peoplehood in a very modern sense, in which the people are not just, you know, kind of loose national group or something. They are the sovereign and popular body that legitimizes a modern state. That is a very different way of thinking that way. And I think, and that, and okay. the two get the two get the two get bound up with one another in complicated ways. Because then you start asking, as you said, how do you can how do you know who the people are? So an obvious way to do that is to look for these kinds of loosely organized cultural groups or historical uh, groups, and say, well, that's the people, and they're the ones who need the state. They're the ones who uh, are the legitimate, you know, authorizers of state power or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, but but I guess ahead, the question Charlie. is, what is the alternative? I mean, what are you suggesting we do or say instead? Um, especially in the context of large populations, very large populations compared to you know what we had in even the largest cities and geographical territories in say the 13th or 14th century, we have just an explosion of people, and that requires creating some mechanisms of representation that you can't in practice have direct representation in these large in these large states so you need to have representation and if you need representation you need to have a people or maybe it's the other way around but it's just not clear to me how what how could we do it otherwise because even china which is you know as totalitarian as you can get still feels a need to observe this fiction of the people and representing the people through the Chinese Communist Party. So no one really seems to be able to evade this in the modern context. I'm sure there are probably a couple of examples of very bizarre states that don't even pretend. I'm having trouble thinking about them now. I don't know, maybe Saudi Arabia or something. But um, but even there, I'm sure you'll have some concessions to the existence of the Saudi people or Saudi citizens and so forth. Um, so what, what say you on that, on all that? No, I think that's spot on. And as I like to say, you know, political theorists, you know, it's not our job to offer solutions. <laughs> that, that, that would be asking too much. More seriously, I think the best thing that political thought can do is try to clarify our situation so that we're not operating in bad faith and we're not, you know, we don't have our head, you know, our sort of muddled understanding. But I think that does clarify our situation. This is what we're stuck with. And in the year 2023, and for that matter, for a long time now, uh, there has not been a real alternative. Now, you can look historic. I think if you clarify the situation, you can see historical alternatives. But those are, again, very, you know, highly historical. But but what's important, I guess, and this is this is where I think partly the rubber meets the road on um, 
the question of democracy as being a sufficient organizing principle. And maybe this is where, uh, this is the question I keep posing to Shadi, um, is, you know, I think if you take Shadi's democratic minimalism, uh, you have sort of an assertion that um, one can define the people as those that believe in democratic sovereignty over perhaps a geographical, a delimited geographical area. Is that fair, Shadi? Is that like a fair, uh, you know, sort of what you're getting at in your Monday note that like it's believed that, that you know, you said, I think at one point in the Monday note, something along the lines of um, uh, it's, it's belief in the people and it's not clear, you know, that, 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 that you, you conceded that maybe democratic minimalism may not be plausibly enough, but you can't really imagine anything more than that. That like, in a sense that you could imagine a people just being, having that commitment. Is that fair, Shadi? Yeah. Okay. So for because we're talking about pluralism mm. here, right? I mean, that's the challenge. It's, 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 it's less of a challenge for, uh, a Germany or, uh, an Israel or a Serbia, uh, to, 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 to define this. It's, it's, it's trickier in the case of a place like the United States where, uh, the people are, are constituted at least popularly and in modern times as those that believe in democracy. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, you're onto something with the comparison with Germany, which is, um, an advanced liberal democracy, but even there, the answer to the question of who are the people in Germany can be answered relatively straightforwardly. It is the German people or Germans. Of course, it's tautological in a way, but um, but Germans or Germany has something that Americans don't have, which is there is a kind of ethnic basis to German identity and try as some liberal Germans might, they can't completely escape that fact. Now, um, the U.S., doesn't have that and is never going to have that. So, you know, the question of the people becomes more intense and more contested, I think, in the American context. But for just some context on my Monday note, the title, which I just sort of chose very quickly without thinking much about it, I do like it, though. It's something like, um, for the people to exist, you have to believe in them, which does reflect, you know, one of my one of my more foundational beliefs about human existence, which is that oftentimes realities can be willed into existence, whether or not they're objectively true is secondary. I don't mean to sound too post postmodernist there, but one thing I brought up in the piece is a belief in God. I don't believe that a belief in God necessitates the objective reality of God's existence. You can believe in God even if he doesn't exist. That's maybe like a little bit of a tangent, but, but, and, and that's obviously that's philosophically complex. What I just said, I know I don't mean to confuse people, but, um, there is, there is something to be said for making leaps of faith and leaps, a leap of faith is something we talk a lot about in everyday life. It's a cliche, but it does speak to something quite real that at some point we have to decide what to believe. It's not as if our beliefs are pre-existing, as if they were always there and they just have to be organically expressed and they're just the sum product of our lived experience. No, we make choices every day about what we want to believe. We don't want to think about it that way because we want to, oh, well, 
these aren't choices. This is just the truth. So I want to like dig a little bit deeper. And, and anyway, so that's part of it. But I would say that to the other part of your question, the democracy doesn't just include people who believe in democracy. And I would never go that far. So um, our, our democratic polity in America will include and should include people who have questionable commitments to the democratic process. Because unfortunately, there are tens of millions of Americans who have questionable commitments to respecting democratic outcomes. And, you know, part of what I do in my own, you know, writing and debating is engage with people who I think have such questionable commitments. It's hard, you know, in a way, it's kind of easy to believe in democracy, but it's also kind of hard. It's simultaneously both, I think. So I'm not going to be here and say, well, the only the only true Americans or the true members of American democracy are those who believe in small d democracy. That just wouldn't make any sense. So I would just say the ones who are included are American citizens. If you are an American citizen, that is enough. And that's in some sense, all that matters legally, but also in the sense of who is to be represented. But, but so uh, David, before I, I jump, you know, you can jump in on this. I just want to say one thing, you know, it's not tautological to say that, uh, you know, uh, a German person is that who is part of the German people. It is much more tautological to say that an American is one who has, you know, American citizenship. That's much less tautological. And that gets to the, the kind of question of, again, I take your point, David, that, you know, there's a modern conception of uh, citizen of a nation state belonging to that group in the modern sense. And that's a political category that's modern and modernly invented. And we can even say that part of the, the, there's a fair bit of myth-making as to what constitutes that constitutes that in the modern sense. That's the whole imagined communities, you know, taken, I think with the fairest, uh, uh, in the fairest context of it. But how do I put it? I, I, I still think, you know, you need something there. And, and, um, and that something is not completely nothing. And it's not completely, I mean, at, 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 at best, you need a set of founding uh, myths that bind a group together enough to be able to get anything done, right? I mean, we can even say that about the United States, um, that it was, you know, a bunch of uh, disgruntled uh, Englishmen who geographically dislocated themselves and grew a kind of sense of solidarity around that. Um, and then sort of Americanness came out of that. And then through all sorts of, uh, I wouldn't say accidents, but, you know, events, dear boy, plus uh, a bunch of pretty smart people who are able to craft a constitutional compact, you got this kind of pretty unique American sense of peoplehood that grows out of these political compromises that are made pretty early and the compromises in them contain a broad enough kind of language that uh, it's allowed to constantly expand. Um, and that, that concept is shifting and, and broadening in the American context, but, but that's not a universal experience at all. And you do need something else, something, or at least you seem to, at least empirically seem to need something, um, which, again, in your essay, you say people have sort of pointed to 
uh, the ancient Israelites as the Ur case of this going back forever. But you kind of do need that somehow or seem to, to be able to construct a modern polity outside okay, of the United Dave, States. Before David responds, just to, just to kind of push you, Demir, um, yes, you need founding myths when you found a nation, but that's what, that's what makes them founding. But, uh, you know, 250 years later, are those myths necessary? And even if they yes. are necessary, it's clear that we no longer share them as Americans. I don't think and there that's is a common... Right, it's a problem, but clearly it's not a big enough problem to end or significantly undermine American democracy, although maybe some might quibble with the latter. But I would quibble clearly... with the clearly. I would quibble with the clearly. <laughs> but I okay, mean, but it clearly, hasn't yet. But clearly we're persisting. I mean, clear, like, clearly for now, at this moment, we are persisting without, share, without these shared myths. Or, we persist um... like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> okay. She persisted as well. Go on, David, jump in, please. I, I didn't know you were such Hillary fans. Um, no, I mean, you're right. We do persist. And the fear, I think the, the worry always is, are we, you know, think about the old, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons. Are we the coyote? You know, we run off the cliff a long time ago and we haven't looked down yet. You know, and this conversations like this are, are, are us looking down. Uh, do you need, you know, do you need to believe? Yeah, this is a good question. And one way to think about this is something like you look at how Hobbes deals with the people. You know, Hobbes doesn't, you know, Hobbes knows the people are artificial. It's highly artificial. It's an artificial man. But the thing that kind of holds us together is this very Hobbesian covenant to get together and say, look, we're just happy we're not dying. We're just happy that the guy next to us isn't about to cut our throats. You know, that's enough. And you, and you end up building up this kind of culture that simply keeps reinforcing this belief that commodious living is just the most important thing. You don't, you don't need a thicker or more robust cultural background. You don't need a bigger myth than that. You know, this is your myth this constant reinforcement of materialism, in a way. Uh, is that right? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it is. Or at least, or perhaps we haven't done enough. Perhaps we're not the lab, we're not, we're not, we haven't yet become Habitian enough. I mean, Spin I mean, Spinoza picks up on this in a big way, and he, both Hobbes and Spinoza, uh, focus intently on the Hebrew Bible, on the Hebrews, the Israelites, as this kind of model. But for Spinoza, the model is there because their their the he the Hebrews own theological myths, their own theological beliefs, that's what that's what you need. But for him it's culture. Right? We're not gonna get God. I mean if you go actually read, you know, something like Exodus, like God is real. God's as real as right. this desk. We don't have that. Like we don't have I mean whether God is real in the sense that Shadi means that we can table that question, but it's not present in that way. So what we need is something like a set of cultural beliefs that provides the same function as, you know, the kind of mosaic law and all of the, you know, and all of the, what we think, you know, what we now call theological beliefs and customs that bound them together. It didn't even really work for them because they constantly were fighting with each other anyway. But something like yeah. that has to be the model. But why, we, but sorry, but David, why, why does it have to be the model? Let me, I just, I mean, you've alluded to it. I just, but I, I want to just push you a little bit yeah. more to specify why, I just, it's not persuasive to me that, it, like, this has to be, why does it have to be this way? But what, but Shadi, what, what, what are you saying? Like, what's, 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 you know, I, I feel like you're in the tautology. You're like, the people exist because I believe in them. But what are they? I believe in them. Okay, but what are they? What, no, but I believe in them. And it's like, you know, but, but, but I think the question of what constitutes it, um, is a, is a profound one because the reason I think it's a, it's an important one 
is because if you if you don't answer that question, there's actually no limit to, uh, you know, the dreaming of, like, say, a global democracy. Like, at the end of that, which to me, again, people can say that, that well, you're right, because it is all construct, and what is what does it matter? We One could imagine a global democracy. For me, I find that deeply implausible. And maybe I need to spend some time unpacking why I find the, the concept of global democracy deeply implausible, but, but I, I would point to that it doesn't have this one thing of uniting, because the human community is not a community. You need something under the human community, something. And I think that something is actually pretty easy to define on ethno-nationalist terms for most of the world, um, ethno-national, religious, tribal, but that's present and is an organizing principle almost everywhere, almost everywhere other than here. Um, it would be my argument against that. Um, and, and just okay. before I forget it, just to mm. throw it out and you can just jump in then, but, but like, you know, David, to your point, um, we did have a lot more God here, uh, at least until mid 20th century. Uh, it was, you know, God in, in the American thing. And that actually does have echoes of the, the ancient Hebrews and the covenant, right? I mean, in many ways, there's like a, an understanding of, of, of a covenant that America had. That's just gone now from since the mid-20th century. We've lost that, certainly. But I wonder, even losing that, that's part of the decay, perhaps. Anyway, either one of you go. Uh, but yeah, I, I just want to note that we're not the only example of this. So it is worth bringing in some other cases here. Um, Canada. Um, and <laughs> Country. <laughs> you, sure, you, sure you, you sure you want to bring in Canada? <laughs> okay, but, well, uh, there's a couple others, too. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Latin America is not Latin American identity. If we're thinking about Brazilian identity, Peruvian identity and so forth is not ethno nationalist. I mean, these are very much, first of all, they have, um, a birthright citizenship, which is always a sign that you're not an ethnic democracy. And there aren't actually many birthright citizenship countries in the world. Even Europe doesn't have, I believe any. But um, Italy, Italy. oh, sorry, unrestricted birthright citizenship, unrestricted. I should clarify that. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the Latin American cases, which I don't know a whole lot about, are just worth keeping in mind here that they, not to say that they're the great models of like harmonious living, but at the same time, some of them have persisted. Some of them have actually been able to t transition to semi-stable democracies without having an ethnic basis to citizenship. So clearly other other polities have tried to do it and are trying to do it. Um, and I guess I'd also say that the ethnic approach doesn't seem super stable necessarily. I mean, do we really want to look at um, Hungary, India, or Israel? And, and are we going to think to ourselves, oh, these are models of stability. They might be models of something. And People can think that those models are positive in other ways. I don't think stability would be at the forefront of their minds there, though. Go on, David. No, I mean, I think that's right. But to me, these things just end up existing on a continuum anyway, because it's very rare that something like a real ethnos is just congruent with the borders of the state. And we can, and to the extent that they are, that itself is largely a construction. I mean, like, take something like, okay, I don't know, Italy. Uh, Italians are kind of a recognizable kind. We can recognize from the outside of things like that. Then you get inside, and all you see are these regions and localism, 
and you know, intensely or intensely so. And in fact, it was so the Italians were so obviously not Italian to each other that it didn't occur to anyone to actually come together until you know, Mach well, first of all, Machiavelli writes it in the end of the Prince, but it doesn't really show up in reality for three hundred years. So all I mean, it's very easy to sort of backfill a kind of eth a kind of uh, a genuinely homogeneous ethnos in a way that's not there. And, and you can see this happen. I mean, you can see them trying to do this in Hungary and even Israel, of course. Which should have something. I mean, we call it an ethno state, but really, it's multiple ethno states overlapping with each other, and that's constantly mm. being sorted out in practice. There's no real way to deal. I mean, the people raises this problem because it's a not. It, it posits something that's non-rational. There's no real way of saying this is the people, and even ethnic and ethnic commonality doesn't get you there. I mean, again, this is why to me the Hebrew example is so powerful in the early modern period, because, like, God had, like, first of all, they were all descended from Jacob, you know, who was Israel, and, so, and then God himself showed up. Like, that was huge. We don't have that option, even of religious polity, like, in parts of the United States were for so long. That, you know, we have, that, or that there are something like Saudi Arabia today, I mean, more religiously oriented polities, like, they don't really have the benefit of actual God showing up and just saying, this is this. I mean, there's no escaping it. This problem that you're identifying—I mean, the ethnic—and you, in the extent that you're saying, yeah, the ethno—the ethnic solution is problematic itself, which it is. It's not even really a solution. It doesn't get us out of this daily problem of reminding oh. ourselves who are the people. Okay, so where does this leave us? So I feel like okay, we've we've all sort of acknowledged that this is a pretty thorny problem or dilemma that doesn't have much of a resolution. Although maybe Demir thinks that there is, perhaps. No. Or, or maybe Demir's indifferent to the fact that there isn't a resolution because, and maybe right. you are too, as a political theorist, you know, it's not necessarily your job to, um, to care a lot about whether a problem can be resolved. But for maybe the lay person, for our listeners who are not political theorists and maybe who are more practical in their, in their lives and, and their hopes, like what is, like, I just, I need, I feel like I need something to hang on here, hang on here to. Hang to hang on to whatever. Here. <laughs> to, to well, okay. I mean, let me. We have private jets on, standing by to take us to New Zealand, so we're going to be okay. <laughs> and then um, to create to create the proper nation state there. No, but look. Um, no, but does David want to say anything to that? Say that again. <laughs> no. I, okay. Well, I mean, you did hear what I what I just sort of said, like. For the layperson, what like what does this leave us with? So, yours, um, if it's all thorny, if these are all un irresolvable dilemmas, then what? So we've clarified that it's unresolvable. Is that enough? I mean, to some extent, I it's no, it's not enough. It's never enough. Uh, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that even those, even something like the Greek polis or the Roman Republic, which did not have this problem. Because they were direct, I mean, that was direct politics. They didn't have to worry about representation and abstraction like that. I mean, they were still torn apart. It isn't as though, it isn't as though they were necessarily better off than we are. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to insist that this problem of ours, this thorny problem, you know, necessarily should induce hopelessness. Things are actually pretty good. Uh, there's, it's a stupid time to be alive, but it's not a terrible time to be alive. Um, and that, that's my mantra. And, so I don't want to I don't want to suggest that this is hopeless, but I do think that this is a fundamentally unresolved and irresolvable problem, and I think it was unresolved and irresolvable going back to its origins 
in early modern political thought, this way of thinking about the people. And I mean, Hobbes' Hobbes's answer is very clear. In the conclusion of Leviathan, he says, do not ask this question. Do not open up that can of worms. If you are the, if you, if you are the people underneath, you, you know, do not start saying, well, how did we get here? You know, was our founding really just? And if you're the ruler, don't try to make everyone agree that really your founding was just and everything was normal and you really are people. Like, just accept your situation and move on. Um, that, mm. That's obviously unsatisfying to us or we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I do think there's... But also good life advice, accept your situation and move on. Yeah, but then you have to accept everything else. You have to basically say that life is really nothing more than, than you know, trying to amass material plenty, avoid violent death, you know, and be happy that you're not living in fear. That doesn't do it oh, for Oh, that's most. me. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Okay, that does sound like quite a lot, though. I just want to be, I, I want to be fair to what you just described. It sounds quite minimal, but it's also quite a lot in the broader sweep of human history. To live without fear is truly an incredible luxury. And so it's just worth noting, but I think you could add maybe one or two more things to that, that, you know, those people who are content to live without fear could also be content to pursue their own conception of the good in their local communities with their families. They can pursue their God as they see fit and hope for eternal salvation. Like that's not, that doesn't sound like the worst way to live. Like, you know, life is what it is. Politics sucks. Politics in many countries in the world are are hopeless or seem hopeless, and apparently many Americans think that about American politics, even if they're wrong. So, like, you know, maybe there is some wisdom to learning to let go and kind of living a quieter life where you take pleasure in the smaller things that could be quite meaningful. So it's not just avoiding death. You can have profound meaning, pleasure, joy and happiness from having a family and being close to God. Shadi, I am making you Minister of Culture in my Habesian Commonwealth. Um, no, in New Zealand. What, every, everything you've said, I think, is wise and prudent, and you're 100% right that that achievement really was an achievement and is an achievement in those places where it's endured. And it's why I would never dismiss the moderns. I would never dismiss the Enlightenment. And it's why I have, I have a personal amount of contempt for guys like Hazoni and Deneen, who you know, who act like, oh, the Enlightenment is the source of all our problems. Like, fine, go out in the jungle with a pointed stick, have some fun, buddy. Uh, and you're quite right. What we've accomplished yeah. is enormous. Is it satisfying to be bourgeois? Is it satisfying? And I mean, and you say you can create meaning, but by saying you're creating meaning, already that pulls the rug out, right? I don't think. I just don't think meaning works that way. I mean, I always think of like the like I was watching the. Uh, I was watching the cartoon, the Disney, uh, Disney's Aladdin, the original one, with my kids. And there's that end where, you know, the emperor or the, the sultan says, wait, I'm the sultan. I can do what I want. You know, like, now, guess what? You know, you're a prince now. We solved all our problems. Like, that's not how it works. That's the postmodern solution. The postmodern solution is to say, hey, this is all constructed, so let's construct something that makes us happy. But by acknowledging that, it makes us unhappy. And we and we mm -hmm. seize we seize to find meaning in things that we know are self consciously created. I mean, what you've said is is very good modern, you know, Habesian Baconian justification for modern society. Um, does it work? Okay, I don't know. That 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 that's all fine. And, and you know, again, <laughs> as you know, Shadi, like I've 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 
been careful about, you know, not being too much of a doomer on America on this. I mean, I always sort of end up on this sort of thing. Well, it's working. And, you know, I've been surprised before. And I, you know, as a as a actual immigrant here, you know, like I, I'm, I'm still I'm still astounded and positively surprised by how well it works, uh, despite many of my priors. I've always said and written that. But but you know the the part on on the minimal democracy thing and the reason where where I come at this on the question of the people and why it's important is when we start talking about democracy promotion and the creation of new democracies out there, and this gets back to then the problem that David was outlining what Hobbes was uh, was saying in Leviathan like you know don't ask these questions about the founding you still need a founding and you still need a people and you can't I'd still say you can't found a lasting democracy without answering that question, at least somewhat, and at least provisionally, and at least perhaps imperfectly, perhaps unhappily, perhaps bloodily, uh, in favor of, again, an in-group and an out-group, that that's necessary. And that in-group and out-group can't just be, maybe it can, but I don't see it being, uh, let's just get together and believe in this thing. You need something more. You need, at least in our case, centuries uh, to get to where we are, to be able to expand the franchise and that sense of belonging to be as broad and capacious as it is. Uh, you can even make the positive case for, for more ethnically, uh, you know, defined countries in Europe that they too are slowly behind us, but still expanding the concept of what it's possible to belong. But certainly not at the founding of a place that hasn't gone through that kind of bringing together. To then parachute in and say, democracy, the individual, we're going to build a polity based on uh, a, a rational understanding that we are all individuals and we must respect the will of our co-individuals, even if there's nothing else binding us to this. Even if it's, if it's uh, all we need is this minimal democracy thing, this minimal conception of, of respect of a community that we just believe in and we don't have to define the limits of. That I don't think works. Um, and that I think is the, the core problem in, in when dem minimal democracy ends up getting, um, applied to call it democracy promotion abroad. I think that's my main problem with where, where that ends up. Um, yeah, but Demir, I would just say like what you've described doesn't totally accord with my own view. Like I would never use the words individual and rational in quite that way. I don't see democracy as being fundamentally about rational individuals exercising their reason. Sorry, I, in I, that, that, that was yeah. putting that was putting words in your mouth a little bit. But but you you would say, and we have talked about this about individual dignity that that's important that that is the core of of democracy. So at the core of the democratic compact is a bunch of individuals getting together, respecting each other's dignity, and then what where I where I imputed you know this rationalism to it is this idea that. I do think to to generalize that insight that we're all human beings and are accorded rights that requires I think a leap of reasoning a very minimal reasoning which is to recognize reasonably that other individuals exist to recognize their dignity uh as individuals as universal individuals and then build a polity around that and I'm saying that's not what builds a polity it's not the universal dignity of other human beings it's it needs to be something more something more cohesive. And that's where I think these myths, call them constructed, call them ancient stories of a covenant with God, uh, a historical narrative, constructed or not, real, passing through history, shared experience. That's that's what's required 
as the glue, as the minimal glue, above and beyond uh, individual dignity. Okay, but Demir, I also just to push back a little bit, I mean, individual dignity is not at the core of my, I mean, of my conception of democracy. I mean, usually when I talk about it, I emphasize um, alternation of power and how that in itself is quite, is a quite beautiful thing. Um, popular sovereignty, um, the kind of conflict management aspects of democracy when you have people who disagree fundamentally. Um, but people need to, to appreciate that and, and embrace it. Um, that that's what? what's that like that's these good things people need to recognize those as good things and therefore say we're going to get together because we recognize these as good outcomes that that's enough um david feel free to jump in i'm yeah. just trying to get i'm just i mean this is obviously a long running debate between demir and i <laughs> um so but maybe just to put it back to you, Demir, while David, um, you know, musters his thoughts. Um, what? So you keep on talking about this something more, mm -hmm. and I've I've pushed you in the past, including in our in our debate in Pittsburgh, and but like, can you just give us a little bit more of what you actually have in mind? Because I think part of the issue here, and maybe this goes back to David's original essay. Part of the modern condition, and I would say not maybe not the entire modern condition, but the late modern condition, i.e. right now, is that deep moral agreement has become impossible in most large polities. That it's not something that we can really return to. It's very hard to develop shared understandings of reality when there are such profound cultural, religious, and identity-based divides. And yes, you can get away with it in New Zealand or, I don't know, Singapore. But if, we're, if you just put to the side very small states that are uniquely homogenous, like it's just not clear to me how you can ever have enough of a shared understanding of morality, considering that you have very high levels of education, like relative to what it was in the past. I mean, people can say that, well, oh, people in these in these countries are dumb or vulnerable to misinformation and all of that. But when it comes to actual educational attainment, if we measure the metrics, it's really remarkable. We're talking about an awareness of politics that is also remarkable in the broader sweep of human history. Um, I don't know what it would have been like in the 12th century, but I imagine that most people didn't care who the caliph was, or they might not have even known who the caliph was. To my knowledge, there isn't a single American who didn't know that Donald Trump was president. Maybe there were like three. But this just goes to show that um, with awareness and education and also the decentralizing effects of social media and the digital landscape more broadly, how you can't fashion, at least not peacefully, shared moral understandings. Okay, so David, to pull you into it, I mean, I I, I think that still Wait, speaks Donald, to Donald Trump what, is <laughs> you're in Canada. You don't know anything. It's fine. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.